Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 23rd of March, 2020. Welcome to my podcast. Today, I want to discuss the recombination of what I've been uh, formulating in terms of epistemology and metaphysics and how I go about as a foundation or grounding for my scientific worldview uh, for the purposes of a critique of pure science, meaning that as a scientist, I want to use the fundamental basics of philosophy so that I can appropriately gain entry into the knowledge base that science should be providing to me as a person who is of empirical nature, and then generating an understanding of what exists and what is reality, the metaphysics of it, and then that can be the enterprise with which I understand how to design experiments, interpret data after those experiments have been conducted, and then um, verify evidence and come up with new ideas that could ultimately be new inductions and carry out new hypothetical considerations for yet more science. So, as with all intellectual contemplation, the preeminence of knowledge as the golden jewel of human reasoning requires, of course, logical argument and an evidence-based dialectical analysis. In the past three authentic biochemistry lectures, I've attempted to do no less than make these arguments, but only toward the ultimate goal of instantiating a functional metaphysics with which to lay the groundwork for a critique of pure science. So I have composed the, these lectures in the midst of what is interestingly in evolved as a worldwide pandemic, <clears throat> a pandemic of a single-stranded positive sense RNA virus that appears to have a center of origin in Hunan, China, that appeared sometime in late fall of 2019, probably from the bat population, another mammal. This is based on sequence information we have. Now, I think it would be a disservice to my audience if I didn't weigh in and make an attempt to recombine my thoughts on my previous hours of lecture on both the molecular pathophysiology of this SARS variant, uh, so-called COVID-19 <clears throat> virus, with the philosophical discussions I've just recently unveiled. So I spent a lot of time giving you biochemical, cell physiology, pathophysiology, molecular genetics lectures on potential targets for this virus. And we lo locked into acid sphingomyelinase as an enzyme that produces ceramide. Ceramide produces lipid rafts. Lipid rafts tend to organize around programmed cell death. And when that is um, corrupted, it leads to not just apoptosis, but necrotosis. And then that can cause tissue damage. And later on, I'll explain how that can lead to morbidity and mortality in things like a viral uh, pathogen. Now, <clears throat> I've spent a great deal of recent lecture time on the SARS coronavirus, and I've detailed the roles of interferon and the cellular interactions of what were called inflammatory monocyte macrophages, and then, of course, the potentiation of memory T lymphocytes, and there's an associated communication toward massive tissue and systemic inflammation as afforded by certain lipids, ceramide being a major one, several cytokines and chemokines, transcription factors, proteases, really important, caspases in particular, 
and growth factors. So there is a complex array of cellular interactions that are mediated by differential alterations of gene expression that help contribute to disease-associated cellular death via mechanisms that can lead to a decrease in airway capacity, thus causing a pathology that diminishes the ability to maximally oxygenate blood. Low circulating oxygenated hemoglobin then ultimately leads to multiple organ failure and then, of course, the potential for death. That's how uh, this etiology of this pathology is functioning. Now, that these pathological mechanisms are linked to the current COVID-19 virus is inferred from its genomic similarity to previous SARS outbreaks where there has been sufficient time to carry out appropriately detailed experiments. I talked about those because they've been published. Now, this is lacking, this, this careful scientific scrutiny publication is lacking in the characterization of the current virus, okay? Because we don't have enough time. We haven't had enough time to carry out these experiments. So without, without doing that, we have to go back and look at the previous record and then extrapolate, okay? This is how science is done. So we, we need to do this in controlled-based research studies in cells, then in animal models, and of course with clinical license. That's starting to happen, but we're nowhere near the, the, the literature that we have on the older SARS and the older MERS data. So that means there's basically a lack, almost a complete lack of evidence, actual scientific evidence, for both the numerator and the denominator that is the calculation for the mortality for this virus. The denominator is the number of cases and the numerator are the number of deaths. So, as I said, the denominator is a measure of the positive test result. If you use reverse transcriptase real-time PCR measurement, which is a common testing profile kit, uh, you're measuring nucleic acid, in this case RNA, as a test for COVID-19. And that test is flawed in many ways because it's set up to overly be overly sensitive and thus it's gonna generate a tremendous number of potential false positives. That's because you're looking for a couple of mutations in a relatively large RNA genome. And so that means the number of cycles you do on your RT-PCR will then more or less dictate uh, an alteration for sensitivity on one hand and detection on the other. That gives you a higher probability of false positives in the denominator. Okay, so RT-PCR doesn't measure, so that's one problem with that technique, that, that test. Furthermore, the RT-PCR doesn't actually measure virus. It measures the RNA that is the viral genome. That means the data is also essentially flawed as it accumulates, as it, as it comes on board because of its heightened sensitivity and because it will never reveal actual virion numbers, which are the propagating agents of the virus. There can be RNA without virion, and indeed this is why this test is essentially useless, both clinically and epidemiologically. So that's a problem with the RT-PCR. Those are the current kits they're selling for at home. Uh, and then you send back the, the swab and that's what they're doing, RT-PCR. Now the next test is better. It's a seroconversion measurement. 
And that detects usually using something called an ELISA technique, which is an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. That detects levels of either IgM, that's membrane-associated immunoglobulin, that's the first stage of immunoglobulin you make from a B cell, now plasma cell soon, or IgG, right? That's the more common antibody later on after the IgM levels drop. Now, when you use that ELISA technique for seroconversion, they are monospecific for the COVID-19 for certain proteins, okay? Like the spike protein or the nucleocapsid protein. Spike protein has the mutations. It's more likely you want to go there because that would be more precise for COVID-19. Now, this too doesn't measure virus, right? It doesn't measure disease either. So the technique measures the productive acquired ultimately plasma cell-mediated immunoglobulin response to certain epitopes within the virus, those epitopes being, for example, spike protein um, uh, motifs. And that would likely, in, acting as epitopes, right? And that would likely detect people who have become immune to the disease because you've seroconverted. Now, these immune people can't spread the virus if they're truly immune because they don't have virus anymore and thus do not contribute to the future of the epidemic itself. So right away, you see the denominator is a problem. Now, there is a third way to do it, and that's to do a plaque assay, so to isolate virus from, say, lung, and then purify that virus, use that virus to transfect human cells in a Petri dish. And if you have a high enough um, transmission of the virus into those cells and they start replicating, they'll kill those cells in the Petri dish and you get the formation of a plaque. That plaque assay then will tell you you have, li you have virus that actually is acting as an agent causing the death of those cells in culture. Plaque assay is much better than seroconversion, which is much better than RT-PCR. Plaque assays are not being now used as the testing kit. It could be, in fact, there's a new paper I will mention if I have time, just came out uh, a few weeks ago in publication that talks about having a cell uh, assay for just that, plaque assays for this COVID-19. Now, I want you to think about what I just said, okay? It's feasible. Okay, so in relation to the numerator of the mortality ratio, there's been no published or documented autopsies that unambiguously demonstrate, okay, that this virus causes death. So causes a pretty high watermark in medicine. It certainly is even a higher watermark in science to say cause. We talk about association or correlation. Causation is a very difficult thing to, quote, prove, unquote. So we've never been able to demonstrate this virus actually causes death of a human being just by itself the only agent that the human being has, no preconditions, no cardiovascular disease, um, no other upper respiratory tract pathogens, uh, no asthma, no bronchitis, uh, the associated comorbidities of aging, just the virus alone does that cause death. That has not been demonstrated, nor have autopsies shown anything like that at the histological level. Now, while it's feasible, COVID-19 could contribute to morbidity because it's a virus that does, uh, you know, infect humans and, it, and its, its brothers and sisters, the original SARS and MERS, do cause morbidity and in some cases pretty high mortality. But this one's a different virus. It's not nearly as virulent as SARS or MERS. So 
COVID-19 could contribute to morbidity to an aging and preconditional disease-ridden population, for example, even diabetics and obese people. But this too has not been actually verified with hard medical evidence. And medical evidence is an easier thing to obtain than scientific evidence because we're much more heavily scrutinizing on control of our experiments. So I want you to keep all of that in mind. Now, applying my epistemological forms and categories, we're going to take a little walk into using the square of opposition. Now, I've talked about this before, and don't be frightened by it. This is the way that you carry out a logical argument. So a logical opposition occurs, standard form of a categorical proposition. If those propositions have the same subject and predicate terms, and if they differ in quality, quantity, or both. You can consider the kinds of oppositions that can arise with differing quantity and quality. For example, case one, they differ in quantity and quality. Two, they differ in quality, not quantity. Three, they differ in quantity, not quality. And four, same quantity and quality. That's the trivial case. Now, now if you're not aware of what I'm getting at, you will soon. But this is the way your mind operates via a synthetic a priori means, a so-called transcendental means, so that you're able to understand, compare, and contrast things that occur around you, phenomena. Okay? Your brain does this without dissecting it the way I'm doing it, but you can use the square of opposition, which is a logical tool, to do just that, to dissect whether or not you're looking at actual authentic um, logical arguments, and those logical arguments are then leading to conclusions, which are themselves also logical. So just imagine there's a square and there's four corners to it, and they they represent four basic forms of propositions. So there's the A proposition, which is a universal affirmative, all SRP, all SRP. Then there's an E proposition, or a universal negation that takes the form no SRP. Don't worry, I'm going to give you an example. I propositions, the third kind of proposition in this four square, square of opposition, a logical tool. I propositions are particular affirmatives. They take the form of some SRP, some SRP. And then the O proposition is a particular negation that takes the form some SR not P. So those are four possible propositions in classical logic. Okay, so I want you to keep this in mind because this is where we need to go when we're understanding this entire system. Now, A propositions or universal affirmatives, I just told you what they take, okay? And so an A proposition can have a relationship to an E, an A proposition can have a relationship to an O, and an A proposition can have a relationship to an I. Those are the other three corners of the four-corner square proposition. So you understand that, right? Okay. Now, let me continue. Given the assumption made within classical categorical logic, also known as Aristotelian logic, every category contains at least one member. The following relationships depicted on the square hold. What are the relationships? Now, listen carefully. First, A and O propositions are contradictory as are E and I propositions. Now, propositions are contradictory. They contradict when the truth of one implies the falsity of the other. And conversely, okay, 
So that you make that clear. Those are contradictions, right? Those are not contrarians. Now, here we see that the truth of a proposition of the form all SRP implies the falsity of the corresponding preposition of the form some S are not P. For example, here was the example for the virus that I've created for you. Okay, ready for this now. If the proposition says this, if COVID-19 causes severe morbidity, leading perhaps to mortality, is true, that's an A proposition, then the proposition some COVID-19 does not cause severe morbidity has to be false. Similarly, if no COVID-19 is causing a disease is false, then the proposition some COVID-19 causes morbidity, that's the I proposition, has to be true. Okay? This is just using categorical logic. So let me continue. Now, secondly, A and E propositions are contrary. That's a weaker difference, okay? So propositions are contrary when they cannot both be true. So an A proposition, for example, all COVID-19 morbidity, okay, and all, all COVID-19 causes morbidity, cannot be true at the same time as the corresponding E proposition, no COVID-19 causes morbidity. They can't both be true. Note, however, that corresponding A and E propositions, while contrary, do not contradict. So while they both can't be true, they can both be false. As with this example, all COVID-19 causes respiratory failure and no COVID-19 causes respiratory failure. Both of those could be false. See, so they're contrary, they're not contradictory. Very important thing to understand here. Now, number three, I and O propositions are sub-contrary. So propositions are sub-contrary when it's impossible for both to be false. Okay, the other one, okay, so because, for example, delaying the spread of COVID-19 would simultaneously delay the onset and progression of the disease, respiratory failure, for example. If that is false, delaying the spread of COVID-19 would not simultaneously delay the onset and progression of severe respiratory distress, must be true. Now, note, however, that it is possible for the corresponding I and O propositions both to be true. So, some COVID-19 promotes respiratory distress, and some COVID does not promote respiratory distress syndrome. Again, the I and O propositions are subcontrary, but not contrary, nor are they contradictory. Okay? Don't worry, we're almost there. Okay, now I just want you to be following along here because it's really important. Because this is how you carry out a logical progression as a scientist before you ever conduct an experiment. Now, lastly, two propositions are said to stand in the relation of a subalternation when the truth of the first, called the superaltern, implies the truth of the second, which is called the subaltern. Okay, this is categorical logic, but not conversely. Now, a proposition stands in a subalternation relation with the corresponding I proposition. The truth of the A proposition, for example, 
Now, here we go. All COVID-19 measures for protection are ethical, implies the truth of the proposition. Some COVID-19 safety measures are ethical. However, the truth of the old proposition, some COVID-19 measures are not ethical, does not imply the truth of the e-proposition, no COVID measures for protection are ethical. So in traditional logic, the truth of an A or E proposition implies the truth of the corresponding I or O proposition, respectively, okay? Consequently, the falsity of an I or O proposition implies the falsity of the corresponding A or E proposition, respectively, okay? So that gets you now into the four corners. Now, the resonating feature of this whole process is the truth of a particular proposition does not imply the truth of the corresponding universal proposition, nor does the falsity of a universal proposition carry downwards to the respective particular proposition. Okay? That's really important to understand. So there's some existential import here. Without the traditional presuppositions of existential import, that is, a supposition that all categories have at least one member, then only the contradictory relation actually would hold. Okay? So this is we're now streamlining the square of opposition a little bit. Now, what's sometimes called the modern square of opposition, the lines for the contrary, subcontraries, and subalternation, they get all erased because you're allowing for maybe some of the categories do not have a member. Now, that would leave only the diagonal lines with the contradictory relationship. Now, what that would say is, if we cannot presuppose and therefore we assert as a first premise, because it's not demonstrated or justified, when you think about knowledge being justified, true belief, the concept that all COVID-19 causes severe morbidity, okay, then we cannot assert that some COVID-19 causes severe morbidity, all right? So we can only say, using a streamlined technique of logic, that COVID-19 may or may not cause severe morbidity. Therefore, both applying the principles of epistemological opposition, which I just did, and the scientific evidence I've all just talked about, remember the numerator denominator discussion, you know, the testing versus actual showing cause of death. It's not found that the premises for the reaction to the COVID virus themselves are necessarily valid. They are not logically valid. Now, that allows, given given that logical and scientific evidence, that this then allows the algorithm-based projections that I've seen being published all over the internet, which confer basically pseudo data because they're projections to basically an uninformed public, because that's the general public. They don't really have any idea of virology, epistemology, epidemiology, scientific method. So pseudo data to an uninformed public can only serve basically to promote disinformation. And disinformation usually results in an emotion called fear. To a population such as the American population, the world population, and that can potentially contribute to an unethical response. 
And what would be a common unethical response for this kind of thing? Mass hysteria. So myself as a scientist and as a metaphysician and as a logical purveyor of understanding, I obtain that there is currently no published evidence, no published evidence at this point that this virus is hyper virulent, like say the MERS is, and thus the shuttering of entire geographical location, the shuttering and closing down of all the schools does not seem to be universally warranted. It's unwarranted. And I would argue also, again, using logical perspective, that it may well be detrimental to freedom. And because of that, the psychological, sociological, physiological well-being of a population. So I wanted to get that out today because I wanted you to understand that there is a way to look at what's being discussed in the media and what's being discussed in even scientific corners that may be misconceived and that we have to think clearly about what's being measured. And you see the measurement of testing for this disease. You have to be clear that what's actually causing mortality is a causal agent COVID-19, and that has not been shown. So the whole idea that testing and morbidity rates are something we need to be following every five minutes by looking at the screen on a computer or a prompter, that just, it's not found. It's not obtained, not logically obtained. Likewise, when I went through the square of opposition, I hope that you can see that just using logic, categorical Aristotelian logic, The way that we're going about examining this particular pandemic does not obtain valid argument. Now, you can take with that whatever you want to. um, But what I take from that, again, uh, what I finally resolve is that we have to be very careful not to induce mass hysteria, which seems to be something that could easily occur. And sometimes it does seem to happen. You think about how the shelves in grocery stores are being reduced. Um, because that can be far worse and that can be an existential threat to the well-being of a population. Uh, Notwithstanding the COVID-19 and whether or not it's causing uh, that particular etiologic agent alone and not in combination with other comorbidities and preconditions of an aging population or a population that is grossly obese, which we have, remember, we have an obesity epidemic And that puts a lot of constraint on the cardiovascular system, as you may know. Without those comorbidities and other disease pathologies, there's no evidence that COVID-19 causes death. In fact, we don't have any really clear autopsy reports that show anything of the sort. So that combined with the testing, I talked about RT-PCR. I talked about the seroconversion assays, looking at IgG and IgM. I I talked about a much better assay the plaque assay, which would tell you at least virus, then you could say, here's a titer of virus in the lung and here's the morbidity of this individual in a clinical um, isolate. Okay, if we have that kind of data, then we're much closer to looking at numerators and denominators and truly understanding the epidemiological perspectives and not trying to make projections using algorithms to generate these numbers that really look astronomical in terms of the deadliness of something that is yet to be shown to be 
virulent at the level that they're describing. So I hope this is helpful to people that listen to authentic biochemistry. Again, I'm not trying to provoke anything. I'm just being logical. I'm being scientific. And that is what I try to do in authentic biochemistry. Next time, we're going to go back to talking about some potential targets um, that I don't think have been reviewed well for um, perhaps removing some of the symptomology of respiratory distress syndrome, which may be, may be linked to this current COVID-19. And those involve, of course, inhibiting certain lipid pathways. And there are drugs on the market that do that. We can talk about that later. So anyways, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Bye for now. 23 March, 2020.